You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, we finished, or Rob finished, the book of Ephesians last week. And uh, today, I want to bring an epilogue. Because the Bible gives us an epilogue to the book of Ephesians, and it's found in Revelation 2, which we'll look at in a minute. You know, when people ask about a local church, uh, when people ask about our local church or any church, uh, they tend to ask what questions. Like, what kind of a church is it? Or what does your church believe? Or, you know, what kind of worship style does your church have? What, what, what do you do for children's ministry? What do you do for the community? It's easy to talk about what questions, and so they are natural questions, easy to speak about that. But we don't usually ask why questions. Why does your church gather on Sundays? Why does your church Worship. Why is community important in your church? Why questions move us beyond the categories of sort of doctrine and practice and take us to the category of motive? And you see, a church can have great what's, great beliefs, biblical beliefs, godly lifestyle, great activities, and yet, still displease the Lord because they have a deficient why. In other words, it's possible to believe right and it's possible to do right with the wrong motive. And that's the story of the Ephesian church. That's the legacy of the Ephesian church. We spent six months looking at the letter to the Ephesians. We've engaged this lofty picture of God who is going to bring all things together in Christ and who has called the people to himself to do so. We've read about how God's grace chose us before time and how God's grace redeemed us in time through Jesus Christ and how God has joined us together as one people, Jew and Gentile, how he's created good works for us to walk in, how he gave us three full chapters of what God has done for us before he revealed how we are to respond, showing us how we're to walk out our faith in all our various roles. I mean, the book of Ephesians, it might be the most cohesive picture of the Christian life in all of the New Testament. Now, if you're the curious type, you may wonder, so what happened after Paul wrote this letter? Oftentimes, we don't get that. We don't find out what happened later. I don't know about you, but I'm a sucker for those, like, where are they now stories. Uh, in my newsfeed, if it's like, where are these child actors now? I'm, I'm pausing and reading what, what happened to them. If it's a TV special, where are the members of the Brady Bunch today? I'm tuned in. I love that stuff, what happened to all those people all these years later. Well, the Bible actually tells us what happens to the people 
in Ephesus after Paul is gone. And it's found in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, this may be a surprise to you, it's written to seven churches. Um, It's not written about America. Russia's not the bear. Okay, it's written to seven churches in the first century. And uh, one of those churches is uh, Ephesus. It's the first one uh, that is listed in these seven churches and it's written about 30 years later. So Paul, write, Paul goes to Ephesus, establishes the church, uh, later is imprisoned, writes to Ephesus. And then 30 years later, we get the book of Revelation and we hear Jesus addressing the church at Ephesus. So we, we wonder, like, what happened? Did they hold on to the gospel? Did they continue to serve the Lord? What happened? Well, the book of Revelation tells us. So let's look together at Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, an epilogue on the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Yet this you also have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, and which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in this section of scripture in writing to these seven churches before he gets into the visions of the book of Revelation. Jesus says that he's walking among the lampstands. Uh, The verse before where we started says the lampstands are these seven churches. And so Jesus is in their midst. That's what he's communicating. I am in the middle of you. I'm walking around your church and I know your works. And uh, the point is, he's there to strengthen them. He's there to encourage. His evaluation of each of the churches is different. Some are encouraging, some less so. But he's there to call them to himself to sustain them. I know your works. And the first thing he says about the church at Revelation is he talks about their what's. So he's going to talk about their what's, and then he's going to talk about their why. Let's start with their what's. First thing we learn is this is a church with sound doctrine. They are a church of orthodoxy. Look at verse 2 and look at the second part of verse 2. He says, well, I'll read the whole thing. I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. They are testing people that claim to be apostles. The Ephesians are sound in their theology. When false apostles blow into town, which frequently happened in New Testament times, Ephesus in particular was on a trading route, so there'd be plenty of people coming into the city. And when people kind of blew in and taught new teachings and new revelations and new doctrines about Jesus, spreading new ideas, the Ephesian church measured them against the scripture and found them false. Back in the letter to Ephesians, Paul had talked to them about this. In Ephesians 4.14, he had said that they are to be built up so that, quote, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Paul had urged them to be doctrinally sound, not to be blown around by this idea and that new thought and that new doctrine and that new leader, but to be firm on the gospel. And they had done it 30 years later. They are sound in their doctrine. They weren't passive either. They were testing. That's proactive. They are testing and measuring and evaluating the teaching of people that claim to have a word from God. And those who were false, well, they called them out. They called it like it was and found them false. These people knew their doctrine. They knew their Bible. They opposed dangerous teaching, and Jesus commends them for this. Well, he goes on in verse 6 to say that they were not only discerning of doctrine, but also practice. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. There's a lot of speculation. They may be the false apostles apostles previously referred to. Uh, A lot of scholars think they were a group, a sort of a sect that uh, was very liberal in their practice and uh, sort of didn't hold to... Uh, you know, sort of a strict biblical morality, believed in Jesus, but were probably had looser standards of morality and this sort of stuff. We don't know for sure, but we know that Jesus hated their practice. And the Ephesians hated their practice, and they agreed with Jesus. How do you discern a wrong practice? Well, you discern a wrong practice by uh, sound doctrine, by biblical truth. You've got to be rooted in biblical truth to be able to evaluate a practice, whether it's sound or not. And and they did so. Because they were sound in doctrine, they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Discerning right and wrong practices. Believing and applying. Not just believing, but applying the truth. We need that in the church today. I mean, the church at Ephesus was discerning. And the evangelical church today lacks discernment in so many areas. So they were a model church when it came to sound doctrine. Number two, they had sound practice. Not only orthodoxy, but orthopraxy. Christ commends the Ephesians for applying truth to their own lives. They didn't have a dead orthodoxy, but they had an orthodoxy that led them to action. Look at verse 2. I know your works... Your toil 
and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Okay, so they have toil and a patient endurance. It's word toil. It literally means hard work which exhausts. The Ephesian church were serving lights out. They weren't consumer Christians. Uh, They weren't lazy. They weren't just sort of passively showing up. They are working their behinds off for the Lord. They are diligent laborers. Now the term toil is broad, but it probably included caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, serving each other, and spreading the gospel to those who did not know the Lord. They were laboring. They were not spectator Christians. They weren't convenient believers. Jesus says, you're working for me to the point of exhaustion. They're standing for truth. They're serving sacrificially. What, What a great encouragement to hear Jesus say, I know you work hard. I see you. I see you staying up at night and getting up in the morning. I see you opening up your home, giving your possessions, your time. I I see you working hard to spread the gospel, being faithful where I've called you so that you can spread the gospel. Not only that, they had patient endurance. So you have this labor to exhaustion, that's toil, and you have patient uh, patient endurance. You are persevering. So you're getting blowback, but you are enduring with patience. They haven't given up. It's been 30 years, and they have not given up. They have responded to the Lord in difficulty. Look at verse 3. I I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. He says it twice. You are enduring patiently. They're they're experiencing a sharp resistance. That's why they're enduring. I mean, they live in the city which has uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. So they are, uh, it was a temple with a lot of immorality. They are living in a world of immorality. They are living in a city that is known for its emperor worship. Those are things they're not compromising on. They're not living immorally. They are not worshiping the emperor. And so they are resisted for that. And they're enduring. Not only do they have pressure from without, they have pressure from within. The last time the Apostle Paul ever talked to these people verbally is in Acts 20. And in Acts 20, he gathers the elders of the Ephesian church together and he says this, quote, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The wolves came and the church endured. They stood on the truth. They called out the wolves. They got rid of the wolves. And they endured the pushback from the inside and from the outside. Patient endurance. 
I mean, this is a church, right? They had sound belief. They had sound practice. They are doctrinally discerning. They're testing what everybody's saying out there to measure whether it's true or not. They don't tolerate evil. Jesus hates the actions of the Nicolaitans, and the Ephesians are with Jesus on that one. They're serving to the point of exhaustion. They're enduring persecution. They are passing the test of adversity. This is a hallmark of a great church. The hallmark of a great church is to endure and pass the test of adversity. It's a great church if you look at the what. What do they believe? Oh, that's great. What do they do? That's great. But Jesus looks at the why. Jesus looks at the why. He evaluates the what, but then he evaluates the why. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Sometimes it's translated, you have forsaken your first love, or you have lost the love you had at first. I mean, note this. They had plenty of truth. They're calling out the bad guys. They had plenty of endurance. They're serving tirelessly when they are opposed. But they don't have the right heart. They don't have the right motive. Intellectually, they're good. Their activity is good. But their affections are gone. They abandoned the love they had at first. Well, what does that mean? What is the love they had at first? There's debate on this. Um, As I've looked at it, scholars are pretty split. uh, Because it's hard to say from the text. Some say they left their love for Jesus. Others say they left their love for one another. I read one person that said they left their love for the lost. Well, I don't think we have to say one or the other because love for God and love for others, those always go together. The great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Or think about 1 John. We have this verse for you. 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21. Look what it says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean, I think it's safe to say that they abandoned the love they had at first for Jesus. And that always affects the love we have for others. Our love for one another is to be an overflow of our experience of the love of Jesus. This is a tragic evaluation. I mean, it's utterly tragic. They believe the right things, but their belief did not fuel a heart for God and a heart For others, knowledge of the Bible is not an end in itself. Knowledge of the Bible is always intended to lead us somewhere. 
It's to lead us to an affectionate love for Christ, which is expressed in warm worship, which is expressed in eager obedience, eager obedience from a transformed heart. God's desire is that we abide in him that we grow in communion with him, that as we learn more Bible, that as our minds grow, that our affections are stirred and our will is transformed so that the truth we're exposed to changes us so that we see our entire lives as a context for living for the glory of God and loving and serving our neighbor. It's never just accumulating information. The goal's not we made it through the book of Ephesians in six months, and now we know more than we did before. The question is, did that teaching, does that revelation from his scripture transform us from the inside? That is the issue. I mean, the the evaluation gets worse because they not only believe the right things, they did the right things. I mean, I look at this before I get to verse 4 about first love. I'm convicted. They're toiling to the point of exhaustion. That This is a high commendation. They are enduring hardship. They've persevered. But here's the reality. Endurance isn't about just gutting it out. It's not just like the Christian version of the grind culture where we're up at 4 a.m. and we're accomplishing all this stuff and here's how we do and we've got all this productivity software and we're reading all the right books on how to get more done and we are just cranking out the productivity and no matter how bad it gets, we work harder. You press harder, we work harder with our teeth gritted. That's a self-help cultural idea. Biblically, endurance works this way. There's pressure, there's opposition, and that causes us to run to Jesus confessing our need, confessing our weakness, crying out for his help. And as we see our dependence on Jesus, he meets us. And as he meets us, our relationship with him grows. And we don't endure by becoming strong in ourselves. We endure by abiding in Jesus and experiencing union with Christ and experiencing the Holy Spirit strengthening us trials and difficulty or to push us to Jesus, not to ourselves. It's not about how hard we work. It's about his hard work within us that we respond to and cooperate with. The dependent love for Jesus that we experience in trials is to bring us to a deeper love for him, a sweeter communion with him, and an overflow of love for others. See, the goal isn't just we grit our teeth and and muscle up And just bear someone's burden because that's the Christian thing to do. I got to bear their burden. They're in my community group. So I got to do it. It's just what we do. As a church, that's just what we do. That's the Ephesians attitude. That's just what we do. We bear burdens. We work hard. We endure. There's no crying in church. We are tough. We are enduring The Ephesians church is a warning to us because they believe all the right doctrine 
And they do all the right things. And Jesus says, I'm about to come and shut the lights out. Because it is not done from a heart connected to me. It's not about love. It's not about love. I I think this passage is a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for me. It's a warning for us, I believe. We could drift doctrinally as a church. I pray not. I work hard at it. We do as pastors. We take doctrine very seriously. It's possible our church could drift doctrinally, but we've got accountability in this issue. We've got accountability inside and outside. We've, we've got... If I say something off, you guys tell me. I mean, there, there's, 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 uh, we could drift doctrinally. I'm not saying we couldn't. I don't want to say, hey, because it's when you're proud uh, that that's when you're set up for a fall. But, but I don't stay awake at night worried that we are going to no longer believe in the atonement. We could drift with our actions. We could all just give up. And stop, stop, stop and do it. But there's, a, there's accountability on that too. If I give up, somebody's going to call me on that. So I'm not saying we're beyond doctrinal infidelity and we're beyond giving up. I'm not saying that. But I don't think that's the greatest threat. We are accountable on those things, but you don't know what's going on in someone's heart. I can measure what you do. You can measure what I do. You can measure what I believe, what I say I believe, by what I teach here. But you can't measure the motive. Is is there a heart for Jesus in this? Is there a simplicity of abiding in Christ and connecting with him? Is there a cultivating of communion and dependence and adoration and love and affection for the Savior? That's subtle. That's below the surface. And that's very dangerous because we can all just get in the habit of doing the stuff and forget why we're doing the stuff and for whom we're doing the stuff. We can concentrate on what we believe, but we can fail to have that belief lead us to the one it points to. Christianity is not accepting a bunch of principles and believing a bunch of facts. It, it, is, it does involve believing facts, but that is to lead us to a person. This is about a person. Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Savior. This is For him, about him, and we must be with him, connected to him, loving him. It's a warning to us as well because we are living in a time, a polarized time, where there is an increasing resistance to our faith. It it surfaces in conversations I have all the time. All the time. It's on your mind. It's on my mind. We're all the time. What's happening in the culture? The culture is getting darker. There's more resistance to our faith. And do you know what happens in an environment like that? They endured patiently. External opposition, internal opposition. Do you know what happens when there is opposition or when we, we feel opposition? Some of the opposition, I think, is just in our heads. But, but some of it's very real. 
And, and when there is that opposition, you, you know what happens? We just sort of dig our heels in with the truth, and we should. We dig our heels in with the truth, and we keep plugging along with this sort of warrior's mentality. And, and as the culture grows darker, and we believe that, that we're growing to be more of a minority, a minority voice, and a minority, uh, you know, it, un, we're unaccepted in the culture where we used to have home field advantage, and now we don't. That's the perception. And so, hey, there is just this warrior mentality And this rise of truth to call out everybody that's wrong and this fighting in the trenches, this sort of warrior mentality. And very, very subtly, hearts start getting hard. And they start getting crusty. And they start getting self-righteous because we've got the truth after all, and we do. And there becomes this sort of self-righteousness It's been a tough two years in the world and in our culture. It's been a tough two years. And this text makes a claim upon us. It asks us a question. It says, in the last two years, can you look today and say, today I love Jesus more than I did two years ago? Can you say, I love my neighbor more than I did two years ago? Can I say I love my unbelieving neighbor more than I did two years ago? Some of you have thought very deeply about the scripture. Wonderful. Thought very deeply about the scripture and have formed an approach and a view toward the crisis of the last two years, toward COVID. You're holding the Bible And reading the Bible and trusting the Bible as you resist the ideology of the secular left and the secular right. Viewing man-made ideologies opposed to God and you're you're discerning that and you've, you've got the scripture strengthening that. It's informing your views of social justice and, and race and uh, racial justice in days like today. You've got the Bible and it is forming your views about gender, about sexual morality, about all the issues of today. And you're standing up for truth. Some of you, you're standing up for truth and it's a risk. You're standing up for truth in a, in a world of cancel culture. You believe Jesus is the only way and your quote-unquote intolerance has costed you some friendships. You've got some family that disapproves of your indoctrination of your kids. You have stood strong and held on the truth. But I want to ask you, do you love Jesus more? today than you did two years ago. Not do you have the right view about that political topic. Not do you understand how this doctrine applies in that situation. I want to ask you about your affection for Jesus. Has the truth led you into love for Christ? Or are you a little bit harder, a little bit self-righteous, Would people around you say, I may not agree with all that she agrees with, but man, I can't deny her love for me. 
I think some of his ideas are kooky and old-fashioned, and I'm not on board with him, but that guy loves me. Would your family say that? Would your unbelieving neighbor say that? Would the fellow church member who has a different take on something say that about you? See, this is the danger. The Ephesians did not forsake sound doctrine. The Ephesians, they, they, they had persevering practice. They just abandoned the love for the one who gave his life for them. They just forgot about what is it all about. And now he threatens to shut the lights out. It's a timely check for us in our cultural moment. I came across a a book about the letter to the seven churches. I think this was written 15 years ago or something. I didn't even know the author. But this is what he wrote, and I thought he could have written this today. I think it was 15 years ago or something like that. I don't know. Scott Daniels is his name. This is what he said. It is natural that in a culture of rapid change, our desire for purity and our fears of conformity would cause the church to fight for its boundaries. Unfortunately, being united by what we fear and what we hate is a poor substitute for being united in the love of Christ. Being united in what we fear and what we hate is not the same in being united in our union with Jesus and our love for him and our love for one another, which will, call, will, which will lead us to call out false apostles, which will lead us to hate the work of the Nicolaitans, whoever they are, which will lead us to take a stand for truth, but to do so with love. That's part of my concern for the evangelical church today. There's a lot of unity about what we hate and what we fear but I don't know if there's a lot of unity around love for Christ, that the doctrines we believe, are they shaping and transforming our hearts? It's possible to labor hard and end up with truth, but no love. It's possible to have light, but no heat. In the battle for doctrinal truth, we must realize it's not enough to believe the truth. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm a truth guy. We're a truth church. But it's not enough to believe the truth. You've got to be transformed by the truth. That's the goal. The goal is not getting 100 on the theology test. The goal is being transformed by the grace of God, by the spirit of God, so that ever ever more and more, we're increasingly loving God and loving our neighbor. That's the goal. He gives us clear instruction on what to do if this is us. He says, first of all, remember, look at verse five, remember from where you have fallen. I love that. Go back to the beginning, Ephesians. Remember, remember when Paul showed up in town and told you this strange teaching about this obscure rabbi that was crucified and buried and rose to new life for you. Think about that. Remember that. I read a story about a, a pastor who was canceling. Can, canceling. 
Well, pastor's part of the cancel culture, I guess, too. He was counseling, not canceling. He was counseling a couple. And this couple was at odds like this. They could not get along. Every question he asked just stirred up more animosity. And so he said, he just stopped and said, you know what? Tell me about when you first met. What was it you liked about one another? And they sort of sheepishly began to review what they appreciated. But tell me about your early dates. What did you do? He just took them back to the beginning. I'm not saying that works every time, but in this time it worked. And it totally took their eyes off the, 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 the stalemate they were experiencing and reminded them of God's love. I mean, of their love for one another. What attracted you? I think that's a great example. Remember the days when Christ was new and real to you. Consider your condition without him. Consider what your life was like before knowing Christ. That was powerful to hear Dylan's testimony this morning. What was it like before knowing Christ? Remember the love of Jesus, your Savior, for you. You know, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. He says, repent. Remembering is not enough. We must also repent. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, verse 5. Repent. Repent means turn. Turn back to him. What is it that cooled your affection for Jesus? What is it that, that sort, of, sort of led you to begin to drift away from him? Maybe it was some relationships. Oh, you still read your Bible and you still come to church, but your heart's not where it was. What changed? Was it maybe some relationships? Maybe it was something, a new hobby. Maybe it was somehow you were spending your time. Maybe it was the entertainment in your life. But what is it that began to capture you so that you just sort of found yourself distracted and cooling and your affections not like they were? Maybe it was just getting embroiled in battles and arguments and you're standing up for truth and and maybe it's an attitude of self-righteousness or pride where instead of loving the people that are opposing you, you see them as the enemy. You see them as an enemy rather than a person to be loved with the gospel. So maybe it's an attitude of pride. What is it? Maybe you're just going through the motions And repentance means to stop and say, Lord, wake me up. I don't want to just do the motions. I don't want to do the stuff. I I want to be motivated by a heart, tender, a tender heart for you. Repent, turn from whatever it is. And then he says, do. Remember, repent, do the works you did at first. Do what you used to do, but do it for the reason you used to do it. Turn back to the Lord and respond to him in a way that honors him. It's sobering. He says if you don't respond, he'll remove their lamps. You'll remove your lampstand. He's he's not talking about people individually losing their salvation, but he's saying that the the corporate witness of the church is just going to be gone like a thousand cathedrals in Europe where one day there may have been uh, active Worship of the Lord, now just an empty shell of what it once was. So he says to this church, to him who has ears to hear. That's what he says, that ultimately, uh, verse 7, he who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? It means it's not just Ephesus he's talking about. He's talking to Grace Church too. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. If it can happen in Ephesus, it can happen to us. So what's the answer? Well, we remember, we repent, and we ask God's grace to do what we once did. Let's pray, and then we're going to receive communion together as a means of remembering and repenting and doing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.